How did we get down this road? This was supposed to be a fun, lighthearted episode where we make jokes. Was it? Because I thought we were going to do a politics episode, so how... This podcast is a member of the Place to Be Nation family. Visit us at placetobenation.com. The only place to be in your pop culture world. America, fuck yeah. Coming again to save the motherfucking day. America, fuck yeah. Freedom is the only. Listeners, and welcome to episode number 45 of the Glenn Butler Podcast Hour Spectacular, where we are venturing into the world of electoral politics once again. I am joined as ever by my brother, Mr. Scott Butler. Scott, are you excited about the election yet? I don't even know what offices are being filled this year. Well, of course, we're only in year three of the 2020 presidential election right now. <laughs> We have about 75 years left to go, it feels like. Well, I mean, that's how the politicians are treating it, right? I'm pretty sure all of the Democratic leaders are really making sure they have all their ducks in a row for the big 2024 election. If there's even going to be a 2024 election, <laughs> am I right? On that note, I feel I owe you an apology. Really? A bit of a mea culpa, if you will. Okay. Because the last time we did one of these political episodes, you called Donald Trump a fascist. And I said, whoa, whoa, wait, we don't want to just be throwing terms around just because you don't like the guy or just because you disagree with him politically. Let's, let's not just start labeling people with these extremist language just because you disagree with him on politics. Just because he's a reprehensible human being doesn't necessarily mean he's in the same category with some of the biggest villains in the history of history. Mm-hmm. And I feel I need, kind of need to take that back, given everything that's going on. Not just with the concentration camps, not just with his policies, but with the way that he operates, with the way that he comes out in news interviews and literally just announces, yes, I would break the law, obviously I would break the law, what are you going to do about it? And the opposition response is, we're going to hope to defeat him in an election in 18 months. That's what we're going to do about your law-breaking. The way that he talks about how there's no way he can lose a legitimate election, and therefore, if he loses, it's not a legitimate election. The way that he comes out and says, you know, a lot of my supporters, I think, are going to try to make me serve more than two terms. I think that's a thing that's going to happen. Yeah, let's start sowing that already. In retrospect, I think you kind of had it pegged, and I can't really object to labeling him as a fascist anymore. Yeah, this is where we are now, where a serious discussion of U.S. government policy involves the precise definition of concentration camp. And everything else, absolutely, but it's really the concentration camps that get me. See, I was about to say, the concentration camps are almost... 
I don't want to, like, rate things on relative relevance, but, like, I think you can have concentration camps without being a fascist. FDR ran concentration camps. The concentration camps are almost low on the list of things to indict this president for in terms of is he a regular American politician or is he leaning into a fascist way of gathering power and cult of personality and just bullying his way through governance irregardless of laws or customs. The concentration camps are almost immaterial to the discussion. There's certainly an indictment on him morally and an indictment on his party morally, and an indictment on all of us that we live in this country and allow this to happen, an indictment on us morally, but it's pretty far down the list of, like, signs this administration is engaging in fascist tactics. Well, I mean, there are certainly fascist tactics that are less normalized. That's true. So I, f I feel I need to make that acknowledgement right off the bat. Acknowledgement? Yeah, that, that's what Donald Trump does. He has he has a lot of a knowledgement, absence of knowledge. Yes, <laughs> God. So I feel I need to make that acknowledgement right off the bat. You had it pegged. Well, thanks. I wish I wasn't right about that one. <laughs> so yes, I think we've already earned the despair in our title, and that's one of the reasons why I think this election could be interesting. Although, in my darker moments, I think it might actually end up being the 2024 election that winds up being interesting, assuming that we get that far. Because these elections, within my lifetime as a politically aware person, seem to go in these cycles where we forget everything that we learned eight years earlier and elect a Republican, and then that Republican is an abject disaster and we just go so far in the other direction trying to elect someone that is so dissimilar from that Republican that we put into office twice. Like, Bush Jr. was such an abject disaster that in our efforts to separate ourselves from his legacy, we elected a black guy whose middle name was Hussein. Who are we going to vote into office to try to get away from Trump's legacy? This is the part of the election that I find to be interesting. Although, again, it's completely likely we re-elect Trump to another term and get there in 2024. Well, I mean, given some of the forces that contributed in the end in the 2016 election, I think we elect is an interesting way to phrase it. <laughs> After that whole introductory section about fascism, how do we go back to discussing politics as normal, here are the people who are running for president? How do you hold those two things in your head? I think that's the quintessential double-think of this era, right? How do you maintain awareness of, of growing fascist tactics and think about, you know, who am I going to elect to my town council this year? How do you do politics as normal in this historical moment? I don't know how you square that circle. Well, the alternative is to lead the revolution. Yeah, I suppose. And there doesn't seem to be a revolution yet. I mean, that's why the closest thing we have to unequivocal good guys these days are Antifa. Which, I haven't the bravery or the courage in any way. I don't know that anyone is an unequivocal good guy. Well, that's why I say the closest, too. Like, somehow, when you look really closely at the opposition to fascist leaders, you somehow find a surprising number of anti-Semites in those ranks? Yeah, often. Which is a bit of, again, a, a sort of a double-think position to have. It's all those greedy, conniving Jews that are propping up the fascists. 
That's sort of an ahistorical bit of thinking. <laughs> well, yes. It's depressing how many movements you scratch deep enough and you find anti-Semitism. Or you don't have to scratch that deep, sometimes. Who was it? I saw an article the other day, I think it was like some actor or musician or someone, posted some sort of image that the message was supposed to be, you know, resist your oppressors. And the image was like a giant boot with a Star of David on the cuff, stamping down on a whole group of people. Yeah, an image from literal Nazi propaganda from the 20s or 30s. I don't remember who it was because I'm horrible with names, but it, it was one of those propaganda bits that had that Voltaire quote. You know, if you want to see who's oppressing you, see who you're not allowed to criticize. And the picture of the boot with the Star of David stomping on people. And then he later took it down and was like, well, I didn't realize it would be seen as anti-Semitic. Yeah. What? Did you look at the image? So, you know, I'm hesitant to label any person or group as good guys. Until I know a fuck of a lot more about them. Like, I'm pretty sure Bernie Sanders isn't anti-Semitic, but he is remarkably dismissive of a lot of racial politics. Yeah. And I'm pretty sure there are Bernie bros that if you scratch the surface, you'll find some disturbing shit. <laughs> oh, God. Exactly how rare do you think it is for somebody to be a big supporter of Bernie Sanders and engage in anti-Semitic attacks against Jared Kushner, both at the same time? Yes. You find that with any form of bigotry or marginalization, like, you have to really convince people that, like, anti-Semitism is bad even when it's directed at someone you don't like. Sexism is bad, even when it's directed at a woman you don't like. On and on with any example of any marginalized identity, like, even when it's directed at someone you don't like, it's still bad. How did we get down this road? This was supposed to be a fun, lighthearted episode where we make jokes. Was it? Because I thought we were going to do a politics episode, so how... This, is, this isn't supposed to be an episode about politics. This is supposed to be an episode where we make jokes at the expense of, A, the ridiculously unimportant people who think they could win the presidency, and B, my complete ignorance of the people that are running for my presidency. <laughs> and instead, we're just... <laughs> and instead, we're talking about Nazi memes and the Bernie Bros <laughs> and Jared Kushner, who... You know, there are about 75,000 people running for president, but I'm pretty sure Jared isn't. Yet. We're going to see about that 2024 election. Oh my god. Assuming Trump ever leaves office four years later. Anyway. Anyway. We're going to go to the jokes now. I think the theme of our opening section is no one's coming to save us. Let's move into a section about the people who think they're coming to save us. We're going to go through the list. First, we'll do the Democrats and then the Republicans. We're going to go through yes. the list of all of the presidential candidates, and we'll see how many of them I know the names of. And Glenn will give us an opinion of them, because Glenn is active on the social internet, and so he theoretically knows about these people. I don't know about that, but we'll see. None of these presidential candidates is one of the anonymously named women who've invited me to a private sex dating site on MySpace. So I don't know any of these people. That's where you've been spending all your time online lately, I know. You know me and private sex dating sites. Anyway, we'll start with the Democrats. 
And we'll follow the same format that we did in our 2016 primary episode, where I will go through the list of names and describe what their Wikipedia picture looks like. And I believe this list is alphabetical. According to Wikipedia, there were 25 Democratic presidential candidates, but one of them has already withdrawn. Oh, God. Should we... Oh, Jesus. Apparently, those results from 10 months before any voting takes place just weren't in his favor. Godspeed, Richard Ojeda. Yeah. Hey, if that's going to do it, then at least 15 of these people should be gone already. So, of the remaining candidates, we start off with Michael Bennett, a U.S. Senator from Colorado. This appears to be an official Senate picture, since the Capitol building is in the background. He looks like your grandpa trying to smile awkwardly because he doesn't understand that that tiny piece of machinery you're holding is a camera. This isn't an auspicious start to the show. I actually got nothing on this guy. (laughs) (laughs) Although I will say, this will be a theme that I return to several times as we run down the list of candidates. One of the most important things about the 2020 elections is winning the Senate, which there appears to be very little importance being placed on in terms of actual party leadership. Although, Michael Bennett, a current senator, is a senator from a state that has a Democratic governor. So should he become president, it wouldn't change the Senate math. So it's not dreadfully and possibly disqualifyingly irresponsible for him to run for president. I believe I have heard of Michael Bennett. Are you, You're not thinking of the football player now? No, although I might vote for him for president. Yes? I know nothing about him or any of his policies, but I have heard of the man, possibly because he is a senator. Yes, possibly, yes. The next person on this list is Joe Biden, a former senator from Delaware. I've heard of him. Joe Biden was so much more likable as vice president than he is at the head of a ticket, or trying to get to the head of a ticket. Whether it's 1988, or 2008, or 2020, whenever he's trying to be the candidate himself, he is so... Unlikable isn't really the wrong word, but he just keeps doing the wrong thing. Every time you look up, there's another article about some incident or public interaction where he just keeps doing the wrong thing. He was so much more likable when he was just the vice president. He could have been vice president, and then the administration ended, and he could have rode off into the sunset as everyone's favorite Uncle Joe. Instead, he got into this race, and now nobody likes him. What was truly likable during his time as vice president was The Onion's Joe Biden. America's weird uncle. He was just like Barack's best friend who just kept rooting him on and clapping him on the shoulder and celebrating whenever he managed to get a minor victory against those ogres in Congress. That was such a likable dude. The precise reason he became Barack Obama's running mate was so that he could be his safe, non-threatening white friend to assure all the nice (laughs) older voters that, you know, it's okay to vote for Barack. He has a white friend. I liked him a lot better as a cheerleader for Obama's policy platform than as the spokesperson of his own policy platform. Yes. Even though, again, I have not really done research on his policy platform because, again, this election isn't even happening this year. 
Well, he announced he was running for president and then, like, started hiding out. You know, as if he could just wait for a primary to happen and, like, contain his appearances until then so he doesn't faceplant as ridiculously as he did the last two times he ran for president. The main thing that I know about his candidacy so far is that he seems to have a lot of policy positions that made him a reasonably progressive guy 25 to 30 years ago. But he doesn't seem to have re-examined any of those positions in the decades since. And a lot of the Democratic Party, especially Democratic voters under 30 or 40 or 50 years old, the consensus among those voters is much further to the left on a lot of issues than it was 20 or 30 years ago when Biden was a reasonably progressive dude. And his response to younger voters is basically, screw you, buck up and vote for me. I haven't seen that. I mean, I haven't really been following the news, so like what I've seen, what I haven't is kind of a crapshoot. I haven't seen that. What I've mainly seen is just him saying a bunch of stuff that would have been fine in the early to mid-90s, but is now looked at a lot more critically. Like, apparently he, like, met a family and said to the young son that his number one job was keeping boys away from his sister. Oh yeah, the man is an ambulatory Me Too moment. He has shown a consistent inability to meet a woman or a girl on the campaign trail without being an absolute creep. But again, that's all stuff that would be... In 1995, he would have been called personable for stuff like that. That would have been, like, standard glad-handing. Yeah, there is a quality of staking out a position that was fine at a certain point in time and then rigorously staying in the exact same place as the rest of the world moves. Well, that that's what I'm saying. I think that either he just hasn't changed anything about his position on a lot of things or just, like, his behavior and mindset is still locked in that same place it was 30 years ago while the rest of the world has been moving. And not necessarily to the left. The fuck of a lot of the national conversation has been moving to the right in a lot of ways, but especially among Democratic voters, especially among the most activist of Democratic voters, they've been moving to the left on a lot of issues that it seems that he hasn't. And so he just seems like a fossil. He absolutely is a fossil. Like, yes. I don't think he has bad intentions. I don't think he looks down on women. Oh, he'll be the first to remind you that he passed the Violence Against Women Act. I think he is generally a good guy. It's just that he's sort of a fossil. Like I said, in 1990 or 95, he would have been a great champion of women's issues. He was. He was in the Senate back then. He was a great champion of women's issues well, in many ways. Except Anita Hill, but yeah. Like I said, he's sort of a fossil. One of the things that Biden loves to do is talk about how much he's going to get all the Republicans in the Senate to go along with everything that he wants to do as president because he was friends with them when he was in the Senate. And they'll just all get together and work something out. Yeah, because the Senate sort of worked that way back when he was in it. So anyway, that's Joe Biden. In his picture on this <laughs> list, yeah. he is smiling widely with that, like, crinkle-eyed smile because your cheeks are just so puffed up by, by the ends of your smile. He just looks, like, really pleased and happy and personable and affable. And I think he is a really personable and affable guy. He's just personable and affable in ways that were more acceptable in 1990 than they are in 2020. He's personal and affable to guys. He 
he's personal and affable to women too. He's just doing it in ways that were more acceptable in 1990 than they are in 2020. I don't know. There are also instances that I've seen where women have, you know, mentioned to him while he's out campaigning that maybe we could use someone who's a little better on women's issues, and he, like, got right up in her face, pointed his finger right at her, and said, Nobody's done more for women than I have! In, like, this really, not only creepy, but, like, threatening pose. Ooh, that's disturbing. Yes. Anyway, the next candidate on this list who has a very good picture, I have to say. He's sort of looking not quite straight at the camera. He's the first one who's not looking straight at the camera, so it looks like more of a candid shot. He's looking off to the side and slightly up. It's a shot from slightly under him. He, he's got sort of a smile, but not like an over-the-top extreme smile. He just looks really genuine, and he's staring off into the future, like slightly above and to the left of where the camera is. It's a really very good headshot. For Cory Booker, U.S. Senator from New Jersey. New Jersey also has a Democratic governor, so it's okay for him to run. I've lost track of Cory Booker in this campaign. I think a lot of people have. He hasn't really been getting a lot of the traction that I think maybe he expected and a lot of people would have expected for him. I remember being a fan of his, like, back when he was the mayor of yes. Newark. And then when he first got to the Senate... But like you said, I haven't really heard anything about him, like, other than he supported Clinton for president because he's a Democrat and she was a Democrat. Mm. I don't know if, like, he was a major supporter of hers or just a party line supporter or whatever, but, like, for the last five years, I don't really remember anything else I've heard about him. I did briefly try to look up some policy initiatives for a lot of these candidates. As much as presidential policy initiatives are going to matter when they're not going to control the Senate, but I'm a broken record on this. The one for Booker that I found was what he calls baby bonds. Uh, Low-cost treasury bonds issued by the U.S. Treasury to each child at birth that matures when they turn 18 to some thousands of dollars. That falls into that category of proposals where it's not necessarily on its face a bad idea, but I feel like it's an attempt to put a band-aid on a much larger structural issue, rather than try to address the larger structural issue. Right. There's been a whole conversation in recent weeks about the distinction between democratic socialism and social democracy. Oh boy. There's a certain class of Democratic political commentator who I know would love nothing more than to have that conversation for the next six years. Yes, I do not want to have that conversation for the next six years. But one distinction that I've been on different sides of at different points in my life, as I've moved left, as I've grown and learned in life, was fundamentally... Do you think that capitalism can be sustained if we only enact a few reforms here and there to try to patch some of the inadequacies, but essentially maintaining a capitalist framework? Or does capitalism need to be tossed in the garbage and die in a fire? And it's not like anyone running for a presidential nomination really seriously wants to talk about tossing capitalism in a trash fire, which is unfortunate. But that's where we are as a country. <laughs> See, I wouldn't really go along with either one of those. Okay. I mean, maybe this is me, you know, a lot of times people move to the right as they get older, 
Or, like Joe Biden, they don't move to the right, but the consensus moves to the left, and they're left out in the cold. Maybe this is happening to me. I would not necessarily be in favor of simply just nationalizing industry and scrapping the entirety of capitalist ideas. But at the same time, your characterization that it needs a few tweaks to operate within a framework? No, that is vastly underestimating the situation. Well, that's the sort of thing that we get with... I mean, a lot of, a lot of these different candidates have different particular ideas for particular patches and band-aids to stick on our economic system. You know, like Cory Booker's baby bonds thing is supposed to be a solution to wealth inequality and different basic starting places for young people and to try to, you know, equalize all of that, which is a fine enough goal. Yeah, but where is that kid going to get the money to buy food from the ages of 1 to 17? Yes, yeah. Where is that kid going to get the money for school supplies from the ages of 5 to 17? I mean, like I said, it's a fine idea, but it feels like an attempt to put a band-aid on a larger structural issue. Yes. I mean, I've heard worse ideas, but I don't think that's going to solve the problem that he thinks it's going to solve. If anything, that idea would probably be a lot better for middle-class kids than for kids growing up in poverty or in the lower class. Because if you're like a regular middle-class kid, where your parents house and clothe and feed you and send you to a decent school with good supplies and have time to help you after school and have time to like help you go to the library to research or buy you a really good computer and a good internet connection so you can do research to aid your schooling. And then you hit 18 and you get this bond so that you have a nice little nest egg to, you know, move out of your parents' place to go or to go to a better college than you could yeah. otherwise afford. That sounds like a real boon. But if your parents can't buy you a meal when you're 13 and you don't get this bond until you're 18, that's not as good a deal. You know, if, you, if you're arrested on some trumped-up marijuana charge when you're 14 and you don't have the money for bail until your bond matures when you're 18, that doesn't sound like as good a deal. Yeah, well, I don't want to pretend like it's his only idea. And he's, he's not bad on criminal justice and, and drug reform and, and some of those things, but it's still, it's Band-Aids all the way down, though. Yeah, yeah. I saw an image somewhere of, like, somebody standing at the base of a dam that had a huge crack running up the entire height of the dam and putting, like, literally a Band-Aid across the crack about six feet off the ground, you know, expecting individual fixes to address systemic problems. That's what that sounds like to me. Yeah, exactly. The solution to wealth inequality is not to just give everyone a savings bond. The solution to wealth inequality is, A, to support low-income and low-wealth people more than we are, and B, to make relative wealth less of an important determination in society. Yes. I mean, absolutely. I think our entire society could bear to be extremely less capitalistic about the pursuit and importance of wealth. Did I just talk myself back around to we need to scrap capitalism and throw it in a fire? I mean, you're going after <laughs> one of the ideological underpinnings. <laughs> Would you like to move on to the next candidate? Well, here's my question. Okay, where's your question? 
If I have an old computer that I've upgraded from and want to sell my old computer, how do I set the price that I'm selling it for if we've scrapped capitalism and thrown it in the fire? How do, who decides who gets that computer if, like, we don't have a capital system of markets where I can just offer it to whoever offers me the most money? Who decides how much Coca-Cola gets manufactured if we nationalize industries? Are we going to have to have a vote in Congress? Are we going to have committee testimonies that we should increase the production of Coca-Cola this year? No. Who I... sets the price on, like, Disney World admission if we've nationalized industries and thrown capitalism in the fire? I'm not... These are the things that hold me back from endorsing that position. I'm not talking about a Soviet system. This is a false dichotomy. If you've gotten rid of the capitalist system, you have to do that. The, those are all aspects of capitalism. Free markets where price determines availability and, and, you know, supply and demand determining price and companies deciding for themselves what to make and how much and how much to charge for it. Those are all capitalist systems. If you're going to scrap capitalism and throw it in the fire, those are all things that get thrown in the fire. That's why I say we need a fuck of a lot of regulation to try to make it more fair, but I don't think you can just abandon all capitalist ideas because... What do you do at that point? <laughs> we're getting back into a political discussion. We're yes. supposed to be making jokes. We're, spo we're supposed to be making jokes about the 40 million candidates, so... Can I just say, on this Wikipedia list, next to the pictures of the candidates, it also has the logo of their campaign. Oh yes, would you like to judge those as well? Well, they are what they are. I'm not going to like criticize anyone for the logo they have 18 months before the election. Except to say... The Bennett logo says Bennett for America, which that always rubs me the wrong way when the candidate tries to say they're for America, like as if they're giving America the great gift of themselves. Like, just say you're running for president. Well, I mean, one of the bedrock qualities that you have to have to run for president is uh, a deep sense of narcissism, right? The Biden logo just says Biden for president. Actually, it just says Biden president. I was just going to say. that's a stylistic choice. We know what they mean. Yeah. And the D and the E are sort of stylized in a way to make it look sort of like a flag that I'm not a huge fan of, but it's fine. The Cory Booker logo says Cory 2020. Yes. I don't like that. You don't like the first names? No. I understood why Hillary Clinton did it, because... Like, sometimes she went by Hillary Clinton, and sometimes she went by Hillary Rodham Clinton, and so to avoid the entire thing, she just campaigned as Hillary. I understood that. I just, eh, use your last name. It's more dignified. Well, if using your last name is more dignified, then using your first name is more personable and affable, right? Yeah, but it's like a forced personableness, and also it seems sort of, like, diminutizing. Hmm. Like, you'd go up to Michael Bennett and say, Mr. Bennett, sir, I'm glad to see you running for president. Or, Mr. Biden, sir, I'm supporting you for president. Or, hey, Corey! It is familiar and personable, but it's like, don't determine for me how familiar and personable I want to be with you. you know? They very much want to determine that. Yeah, but it strikes me the wrong way. I don't like it when they determine that. Hmm. Anyway. Anyway, have you heard of our next candidate? Not in the least. <laughs> I have no idea who this person is. Apparently he's the governor of Montana. Yes. He's the first candidate who's not wearing a suit, or at the very least, a shirt and tie. He's wearing an open-collar shirt. Is that a denim shirt? Or maybe it's just a blue shirt. I don't know. It's a very small photograph. 
And he's sort of smiling. It looks like a genuine photo. I'm just not a fan of the photo. I don't really know why. I mean, he looks like he looks like more of a candid photo. He's not posing in a forced smile. He looks genuine. Anyway, this is apparently the governor of Montana, Steve Bullock, who I had never heard of his name until just now. The main thing that I've heard of Steve Bullock doing over the last couple of weeks has been whining without end about not being in one of the uh, first round of Democratic debates this week. The qualifications for the debate were set at a certain number of donors or a certain polling percentage in a certain number of polls. And there were, I think, four out of 24 official candidates who didn't make that bar. And Steve Bullock, I think more than anyone else, is whining about it incredibly. On the one hand, I think I'm sort of on his side. Because I hate when they do that with the main debate. Like, remember when the qualification was you have to be polling at at least 10% in order to get into the, like, main election debate. And then Ross Perot was polling high enough that they put him in the debates. And then they changed the qualification that you have to be polling at 20% to get into a debate. Yeah. Just to make sure they never have to let anyone other than the Democratic nominee and the Republican nominee into a debate ever again. And I think that's bullshit. And frankly, don't think it should be allowed. So, on the one hand, I think I sort of agree with Steve Bullock. I had to look back at my screen to remember his first name. I wanted to, <laughs> I wanted to call him Randy Bullock. Of course. Who I believe is a linebacker. But anyway... Um, I have learned a second thing about Steve Bullock. The second thing I've learned about Steve Bullock that the internet has told me is that his 11-year-old nephew was killed in a school shooting. Well, I guess that would be his central policy tenet, I guess? Well, I think that might inform his campaign somewhat. That might inform a couple of issues somewhat. Did this happen, like, while he was governor, or was this the impetus for his political career? I don't know. Let me look at things. Bullock's logo, by the way, is a very well-chosen Bullock 2020. Very good. Uh, this was 1994. Okay, so likely, if not the impetus for his political career, very early in his political career. Yes. I'm seeing this in the context of an interview with NPR, and he, he talks about how it informs his perspective on providing social services and support systems because of the particular circumstances of the 10-year-old that shot his 11-year-old nephew. It, it's a whole thing. Steve Bullock is also one of the presidential candidates with effectively no chance who is from a state with a winnable Senate race. Like I said, I'm generally in favor of throw all the candidates into the debate. Like, the debate is how you present yourself to the American people. You don't make a requirement of having one support in order to get into the debate. The debate is where you try to win support. That's I, the idea, anyway. I suppose also that if you're already splitting everyone into two debates because you have 20 people in the debates, what's 24? So, anyway, that's Steve Bullock. That's who Steve I just almost called Randy Bullock again. I almost called him Steve Bennett. The next candidate, who he's looking off center, sort of smiling. I don't know, something about the photo just was kind of weird and goofy, though. This is the mayor of South Bend, Indiana, Pete Beautygeig. Jesus. 
His logo, by the way, says 20 Pete 20, which is just across the board a disaster of logo design. Well, he doesn't want to feature his last name, which I'm pretty sure is pronounced Buttigieg. Oh, oh, Pete Buttigieg. I've heard of him. Now you've heard of him. I, I didn't recognize it when I thought his name was Beauty Guy, but Buttigieg. I've heard of Buttigieg. Okay. Buttigieg was the example that somebody used. They were discussing how the storyline in Captain America the Winter Soldier that half the government and all of S.H.I.E.L.D. turned out to be covert Hydra agents was actually one of the more realistic things in the Marvel movies, and the example was, if Pete Buttigieg was actually a secret Hydra agent, would you know? Okay, alright, okay. So I have heard of him. I know nothing about him, except that apparently he's the mayor of South Bend, Indiana, and his logo is a dumpster fire. <laughs> We're throwing his logo in, in the dumpster fire with capitalism? A, he uses his first name solely. Two, it's not even Pete 2020, it's 20 Pete 20. It's symmetrical. Is number 20 his uniform number? Is that why he has one on either side of his name? Is number 20 where he's polling in this list of candidates? Is that why he has one on either side of his name? You know, that may soon be true. <laughs> so yeah, Pete Buttigieg, he's gay, so that's cool, I guess. You know, that's nice. Okay. I'm pretty sure he's the first major party candidate that anyone's taking at all seriously who's gay, so that's cool. When he's one of 24 candidates, can we really say he's one of the major candidates that people are taking seriously? Pundits like to take him seriously. Okay. Um, other than that, he comes off to me like kind of just another like bland, moderate dude. And I think there are a lot of them in this race, and I think most of them are just waiting for Biden to faceplant and hoping that they're the one left standing. I mean, right when Biden entered the race and started polling highly, everyone was waiting for him to faceplant and hoping that they would be the one left standing, but especially the other bland white dudes. I have two responses to that. One, hasn't Biden faceplanted a few times and he's still the one standing? And two, isn't that the same electoral strategy that, like, Jeb Bush and Marco Rubio had last time around? Yeah, but the hope is that the essential differences between the Democratic primary electorate and the Republican primary electorate will make a difference there. <laughs> the one policy initiative that I can recall off the top of my head from Mayor Pete is a ridiculously insipid reformation scheme for the Supreme Court. Mm. Whereby the court... Let me guide you through this. Mayor Pete's proposition for reforming the Supreme Court is to have 15 justices, 5 Democrats, 5 Republicans, and another 5 who can only be appointed by the unanimous consent of the other 10. It's part of this whole idea that we need to take the politics out of everything, including politics. Take the politics out of the court by explicitly making 10 of them political? I mean... I don't think it's actually the worst idea. I think it's, like, the most unrealistic in terms of will this happen. Nobody's going to agree to a court-packing plan. Well, court-packing has been discussed in a great number of circles as far as how do you solve a problem like Neil Gorsuch? And how do you solve a problem like Justice Blackout O'Rapist? 
Um, well, the easy way would have been not confirming them in the Senate. Yeah, it would have been nice. It would have been really nice. How did uh, Senator Bennett and Senator Booker, uh, how, how did they vote in those confirmations? I'm pretty sure they didn't vote for them. I would have to look up the Gorsuch one. Because <laughs> I think several people voted for him for some godforsaken reason. But I'm pretty sure that the only Democrat who voted for Justice Blackout or Rapist was Joe Manchin. There's a certain argument to be made that any Senate Democrat who voted in favor of any appointee of Trump to any office, judicial or political or executive, should be disqualified. Would that it were so, but we have the choices that we have. At the very least, it should be a black mark against them. There's one candidate coming up later in the list who was notable for voting for the fewest Trump appointees when he was first appointing his, his cabinet in 2017 than any other senator. So we'll get there, but for any of them to have voted for any of them, I know. For anyone to have voted for Kristen Nielsen or Mike Pompeo or anyone, really. The next candidate, who has a very large forehead. Okay. He looks like, you know when people, like, style their hair by, like, slicking it all the way back and then, like, tie it in a bun or have, like, a very, very tight ponytail? And so it looks like they've just, like, pulled their hairline back and have tied it back. And so the fa the skin on their face just looks larger than it used to because the hairline's been pulled back all around the circumference of the face. Mm -hmm. That's what this guy looks like. Also, it's a very posed smile. And what appears to be some sort of official portrait photo because he's got an American flag hung behind him. This is the former U.S. Secretary of Housing and Urban Development, Julian Castro. First uh, of all, he's never going to win Florida. Well, okay. Yeah, Castro was, was the uh, HUD secretary for the last few years of the Obama administration, and a little surprise that one of the major initiatives that he's come out with during his presidential run is about housing and homelessness with a vast array of housing vouchers and tax credits for rent and uh, general, you know, expansions and better funding for existing housing relief programs that he oversaw at HUD. He used to be the mayor of San Antonio, which a lot of people touting Mayor Pete for being a Democratic mayor in a red state seem to forget or ignore. Uh, that was one of the big things about Buttigieg when he announced that people were touting. But meanwhile, Julian Castro you know, was saying, what about me? I'm here. We're here. The Castro logo, by the way, appears to be trying to appease me while also appeasing Florida voters because the name Julian, with an accent on it, so it might be Julian. Yeah. The name Julian is in giant block letters. And then way down in the corner in tiny little blue letters is the last name Castro. So technically he's got his full name on there, but please ignore this part. <laughs> Julian! Castro. Uh, he's also, in terms of his announced initiatives, he's pretty good on policing reforms too, which is an attractive subject. I'm fine with him. I haven't seen anything like really disqualifying about him. Although, you should say, there is something disqualifying about all of these people. That's how politics works now, I guess. Well, now. But I haven't heard anything particularly disqualifying about Castro. He's fine. 
I know nothing about him. Well, there we go. The next candidate, who this picture, I like it more because it's sort of more like a, not a candid photo because it's not like secret, but it's like him in action. He's standing. It's taken from the side. He's speaking into a microphone, clearly in front of a group of people, clearly paying attention to the people he's talking to and not the camera. That always just sort of comes off better to me rather than a posed photo. This is New York City Mayor Bill de Blasio, who I didn't know was running. Why? Why? <laughs> because I don't pay attention to the news. So I'm not asking you, I'm asking him. <laughs> I believe that the literal reason why Bill de Blasio is running for president is because Pete Buttigieg announced he was running for president, and de Blasio said, well, he's a mayor. I'm a mayor of a much better city. Why not me? I remember people liking him when he was elected mayor. How has his term gone? I think a lot of people are disillusioned with him at this point, but it's not like he's not better than the alternative. Like, at the time, he was a big advocate of policing reform. This was in the wake of, you know, Eric Garner and other incidents in New York. Yeah. So he was talking a lot about policing reform. The police didn't like him because he dared say that a police officer somewhere may have done something wrong. Yeah. But I know nothing about what he's done as mayor or what his positions are as candidate for president. His logo is... I mean, it's got his last name, but the D is not capitalized, so it looks weird. Well, that's how... I mean, that's his name. The, the D isn't capitalized in his name. Yeah, but when you've got a name where the, the first letter isn't capitalized in your name, that doesn't look right. Look, I know how names work. Yeah, you, have, you have a name, yeah. I know how names work based almost exclusively on traditional English names handed down since the Anglo-Saxon days. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Therefore, I can apply it universally to all candidates of all backgrounds. I think it's weird that the first letter of his name isn't capitalized. I think it looks weird. Well, when Athelred the Unready runs for president, I'm sure his sign will please you. Or his sigil, rather. This is also the first logo that has a website right in the logo. But it's a weird sort of blue text on green background, and it's very thin letters, and so it's kind of hard to read. It would be easier if the colors were different or if just the print was bolder. Like, his name is in bold print that's easy to read. His name is also white text on a blue background, which is easier to read. The blue text on the green background in very, very pencil-thin strokes on the letters is much harder to read. Well, that, I believe, is the design for his hand signs, the main point of which is for staffers and supporters to hold up behind him when he does events, so that when you see a press photo of him from one of his events, his signs behind him will tell you, you know, who he is and his website. Now that everyone has HD televisions, you know, we, we can do a little more with text in terms of readability. That might not necessarily come across in a 250-pixel-wide version on his Wikipedia page. The next candidate is U.S. Representative from Maryland, John Delaney, who in his photo looks like a Will Ferrell character from SNL. That's former Maryland Representative John Delaney, who forwent re-election in 2018 so that he could run for president in 2020. At the very least, his logo says Delaney for President 2020. A plus. 
Sure, yeah. He's he's just another bland white dude who's probably waiting for Biden and everyone else to faceplant to be, like, a safe option. How far down the list are these people? Like, if Biden and Warren and Sanders and Castro and Buttigieg and X and Y and Z and A and B and C and D all faceplant, I'm going to be ready and waiting. I mean, it's a campaign strategy. It's not impossible. It's not impossible. You gotta believe. I've never heard of this person before, so I have no comment on his policy positions. Uh, the one thing that I've heard of that he did was he made some sort of pledge when he's president to have a quarterly debate with Congress. How or why, I do not know. And to what end? Yeah, that's... But that's that guy. We are a very detailed podcast. Our next candidate is U.S. Representative from Hawaii, Tulsi Gabbard. Oh, Tulsi Gabbard, yeah. Whose logo simply says, Tulsi 2020. Good job, good solid logo. This appears to be like her official House member photo, because again, it's got the flag in the background, but she looks fine. She's sort of facing to the side with her head turned towards the camera. It's good for a staged photo. It doesn't look, like, awkward or forced like a lot of these staged photos do. Sure, I guess. The one thing that got a lot of talk in my online circles when Tulsi Gabbard announced her campaign was a bunch of really, really vile anti-queer stuff from the 2000s. That's disappointing. Apparently her father ran, I don't know if he still does, he might, an organization in Hawaii that's basically like Hawaiian focus on the family. Mm. Uh, they were pushing a state constitutional amendment banning marriage in 1998 that passed. The same organization that her father ran and she worked for as a teenager before she ran for a state office at 21 also supported conversion therapy, also known as child torture. Has she said anything about this in more recent years, or has she just tried to sweep it all under the rug? What I was able to find that she said about it was that she regrets these, you know, unfortunate views that she expressed in the past, yada yada yada. She credits her military service. She was in a uh, medical division in Iraq and Kuwait at various points in the 2000s. She credits serving in the military alongside queer people in the military with changing these views of hers when, when she saw that these comrades of, of hers were, you know, just as dedicated to military service as she was, or whatever. Which I think is probably just an excuse to keep bringing up military service, which oh, it got awesome. us to. <laughs> <laughs> I mean... In terms of, of, like, votes in Congress, I don't think she's, you know, virulently anti-gay at this point. And she has said that her views have changed. I feel like I would have heard a lot more about her if she was an actual anti-gay Democratic representative. You know, I remember Stupak. Oh, God. That was abortion, not gay rights, but, you know... Still. Same idea. Yes. I mean, it's entirely possible that she was raised to believe certain things, and then once she got out and experienced the real world on her own, she learned that the things that she was brought up to believe didn't line up with how she experienced the world, and she changed her views. That's an entirely plausible story. And depending on how she tells it, and, like, how she refers back to those old views, 
I mean, again, I would feel a lot better about it if she would, like, openly acknowledge what she was raised to believe and just explain, look, I was raised to believe this, but once I got into the real world, I saw that it wasn't true. And so now we have to be the ones to explain to people that have been raised to believe bad things that they can change their minds, too. That would make me a lot more comfortable with it than her just trying to, like, yeah, 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 but I don't believe that anymore. Can we move on to my housing proposal? <laughs> you know? I would like to see her acknowledge her past and use it to inform her present rather than simply try to, like, move on past it and ignore it. I don't know which of these she's doing because I know nothing about her. But depending on which of those things she is doing would sort of determine how I feel about her past views and actions. Like, is this something that she acknowledges was a bad thing that she used to do but has now grown as a person? Or is this something she just doesn't want to talk about because it's not politically expedient? Which doesn't really tell me anything about how does she actually view those issues now. I think she's mainly said that she regrets the views that she had in the past. And I don't think there's a whole lot past that. Like, there isn't, you know, activism in the other direction sprouting from that. But it's something that she acknowledges. Especially when she started to run for president in a party where some voters are prioritizing this now. But like I said, that's an entirely plausible thing that could happen to a lot of people. Is that you're raised to believe something and you believe it because the people in charge of raising you told you. Yeah. And then as you like become an adult and experience the world for yourself, your views change and evolve. That is not something, I mean, it could be something that you're just saying as a story for political expediency, but that is also the lived experience of a hell of a lot of people. True. Yes. I also kind of get the impression that Tulsi Gabbard falls into a category of people in terms of foreign policy who are so against and so aware of U.S. propaganda in the world. Or the propaganda that, you know, the U.S. is a force for good in the world when our military, you know, destroys random countries. Not random countries. Not right. Sure. Okay, fair. There are certain criteria of which countries we destroy. Yes, yes, that's very true. But let me know if you see the same category of people. There are folks who are aware of that propaganda and so against it that they start to fall for the propaganda of other countries just because they're not the U.S. Aren't those, like, the American Taliban? Okay, not the American Taliban. I'm referring more to a tendency that Tulsi Gabbard in particular has shown to be friendly toward, say, Vladimir Putin. You mean and, like our president? And not in the way of our president, <laughs> but... Recognizing that America is not unreservedly good does not necessarily mean that any other country that opposes America is necessarily good, and some people don't seem to quite understand that? Yes. Yes, that's what I'm trying to get at. Yeah. So with Putin and Bashar al-Assad, I think there's a tendency that she has, which is slightly troubling. I gotta say, in light of our previous conversation, Putin's Russia and al-Assad's Syria, their policies toward gay people is not exactly... It's more in line with her old views than her new purported new ones. Uh, well, okay. Yes. The internet also tells me that Gabbard is a supporter of Hindu nationalists in India, which is a context that I will not pretend to have any particular expertise on, other than the general impression that nationalism does not lead to good places. 
I thought India was the product of Hindu nationalists. Like, that's why there's a separate India and Pakistan, because of the Muslim nationalists and the Hindu nationalists. Well, there's always a more extreme set of nationalists, isn't there? I mean, the U.S. Maybe is... Maybe I don't have the most complete and nuanced understanding of the history of the subcontinent. I mean, the U.S. is the product of settler nationalism, but our nationalist strain rises in many forms in different places and times in history. But, like, that's my understanding. At one point, there was just, like, one big giant India, and then it separated largely based on religious and ethnic backgrounds into a Muslim former India and a Hindu India. Wasn't the partition randomly drawn by the British as they were withdrawing from the subcontinent? I don't know exactly who determined the line, but the reason why it didn't just stay one giant united India was because of conflict between Muslim people and areas and Hindu people and areas. Otherwise, Pakistan and Bangladesh and India would just all still be India. Mm. We're really not the people to be having this conversation. Especially not without Googling first. Oh, God. Okay. Shall we move on? Our next candidate is the U.S. Senator from New York, Kirsten Gillibrand, who I have heard of. I bet. I'm not super familiar with her policy platform, but I know of her. This, again, appears to be some sort of official photo since it is posed, but there's no flag in the background, so it seems less obnoxious. I think it might be cropped out. Possible. Her logo says 2020 Gillibrand. Which, A, I like because it has her last name and the year that she's running for office. It could easily be reappropriated for a Senate race once she loses this primary. I don't know if her seat is up for election this year. Also, the way that she's positioned it, it sort of implies that she has really good insight into issues. Because it says 2020 Gillibrand. It's like a nickname. What? Like, she's not far-sighted Gillibrand or near-sighted Gillibrand. She's old 2020 Gillibrand. Oh, my God. Sure. Although the way that they... The 2020 is not quite above the name Gillibrand. It's sort of very slightly behind the very top of the name, and so it sort of seems like the year is looming over it from behind. I mean, it's looming over all of us. <laughs> Come on. <laughs> Again, I know of her... I know very little about her policy positions. I know people weren't exactly huge fans of hers when she first took the Senate seat, but I feel like people have grown to like her more as she's been in the Senate. Well, I'll tell you this. The other day, my good and dear friend, Mr. Steve Willey, sent me a video from a Pride Month celebration that Gillibrand was at, probably in a bar in Iowa where she had, like, a rainbow t-shirt, and there was, you know, loud music playing, and she just kind of bopped along to the music for a few seconds before throwing her hand up and saying, GAY RIGHTS! Well, that's certainly awkward enough to be a presidential candidate. Now, you're face-palming, but she's actually not that bad on gay rights. She's actually okay. I'm not commenting on her positions at all. I'm just saying that is stilted and awkward enough to be a presidential candidate trying to fit in with the norms. It's, yeah, okay, it's awkward, yes. The main impression that I have of Gillibrand is that in each political office she's held, she's governed and voted slightly to the left of her electorate. 
And as she went from a House seat in, uh, I believe, upstate New York to the Senate seat in New York, that electorate changed. That electorate became a little farther left, and she adjusted to that when she got to the Senate. Which is why I think a lot of people were unsatisfied with her when she first got there, because of her voting record in the House. But then, you know, once she had a different electorate as a senator, she adjusted. And so, I mean, it's political, you know, triangulation and all and all that, which you have to contend with with these people. But in terms of, of what she's done as senator, I think her heart's generally in the right place. The one place I think she's really faltered since she started her presidential campaign was when she announced an opioid policy that was pretty strict and pretty draconian in terms of like limiting prescription lengths and a few other things that just show that she didn't consult anyone in the, uh, the disability community or people with first-hand experience of chronic pain who might have some relevant experience on the entire opioid issue. She caught a lot of flack for that, at least, you know, on my Twitter timeline. <laughs> um, and eventually, it took a while for her to say, you know, that I'm open with talking with disability advocates, etc., etc., etc. But just once, I wish one of these people would just say, Oops, I hadn't considered that. Exactly! I'll now reconsider my position. Exactly! You know, there are experts and people with experience in these issues that have some worthwhile things to say, and I will listen to them. That, frankly, even more than any policy position right or wrong, I would be much more attracted to a candidate who, when confronted with something like that, would just say, Oh, I hadn't thought of it from that angle before. Let me talk to some people who advocate that position and incorporate it into my thinking and reconsider my position. Yes. That would sway me over to your side way more than any of these fucking mealy-mouthed political things. Generally, as a politician, she's very smart. There are times when she's been ahead of the bandwagon. People like to give her flack for the Al Franken thing, which is ridiculous. What was the Al Franken thing? When it came to light that Al Franken had sexually harassed some number of women over his political career and before, calls started to come out for him to resign. This was right before the um, Justice Blackout O Rapist hearings. And so it was thought that it would be incredibly hypocritical for them to let Al Franken slide and then have those hearings. And Gillibrand was among the first to publicly call for him to resign, which got her a lot of flack from people who wanted to defend Al Franken for reasons I don't understand or approve of. Because they like him? And because he's on our side? Okay. Abuse is abuse even when it's committed by someone you like. You know, but... Well, yes, but don't say you don't understand their reasons. You oh, understand their reasons. You okay. just don't approve of them. Fine, fine. Because they're terrible I, attempts at justification. I know I know what the reasons are, but I, I meant understand as in, like, subjective experience, but I get what you're saying, yes. Except the thing is, she was among the first to call for him to resign, quote-unquote, by doing it about five minutes before everyone else. So, so, you know, she got just ahead of the bandwagon, and so catches flack for that, which is ludicrous. Would you like to move on to our next fine candidate here? Oh, good God! Yes. Seriously? He's running again? As a Democrat? I don't know that it's serious, but let's clue the listeners in first. 
Juno 1, Anchorage Wirebanks 1 MC, Gravella Helicopter up in his, his house. That's right, it's Mike Gravel. <laughs> and I would question whether or not this is real. Helpfully, the logo says Gravel 2020, so that we know which candidacy it's referring to. Yes, in a fine, bold sans serif. Well, nobody has serifs anymore, do they? In his picture, he looks like a befuddled old man. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Oh, God, how can I sum up the Gravel 2020 campaign? As an aside, this isn't necessarily disqualifying, but I feel like it's something to keep in mind. If he were to win the presidential election, he would be almost 91 when he took the oath of office. The Mike Gravel 2020 campaign started when Mike Gravel gave his Twitter password to two teenagers. Just for fun? The Gravel 2020 campaign is a couple of lefty Twitter trolls who latched onto Mike Gravel. Yeah, aren't all the lefty Twitter trolls stumping for Sanders? These two landed on Mike Gravel. Their mission is to get him into a Democratic debate to be a genuine anti-imperialist voice on the debate stage. And their main method of attack is dragging all the other candidates on Twitter. All these candidates, it lists what is their current office or their most recent office. Yes. Like Kirsten Gillibrand is a current senator. Tulsi Gabbard is a current representative. John Delaney was a representative as recently as 2019. Julian Castro was the Housing and Urban Development Secretary until 2017. All these people list their most recent office. Mike Gravel's most recent office is Senator from Alaska, which ended in 1981. Yes. Yes, this man was in the Senate, but not since a few years before I was born. There are a couple of different very unkind ways of describing these folks that I've seen. The first is the campaign is being run by a couple of teenagers committing elder abuse. And another that I've seen is this campaign is being run by Baby's First Chomsky. And that is the presidential campaign of Mike Gravel. At least you've heard of him. I mean, maybe it's nice for them? They can build on this in the future? I don't know, I guess. How are these two connected to him? Are they, like, his nephews or grandchildren? They're not just, like, Twitter randos that showed up at his door. I don't actually... <laughs> I don't actually know. I mean, literally, the headlines about this thing. Teens started Mike Gravel's meme-heavy 2020 presidential campaign. I mean, it's presidential campaign by way of performance art. Which, to be fair, is how we got our fucking president. <laughs> Our next candidate, we finally moved past the G's. Yeah, the, a lot of G's, yeah. Our first candidate with the next letter of the alphabet is your U.S. Senator from California, Kamala Harris. Mm-hmm. This is, again, some sort of posed official portrait 
She's got the flag in the background. She's wearing pearls. Her campaign logo says Kamala Harris for the people. Which, again, I understand the intent. I just find it kind of presumptuous. Yeah, she's really leaning into the prosecutor stuff. Which, to be fair, what Trump needs is a prosecutor, right? Is a prosecutor really the sort of person that's super popular with activist Democrats these days? Well, that's the other side of her campaign, isn't it? Maybe it's too easy just to say Harris is a cop and dismiss her entirely and just leave it there. I mean, every lawyer who worked as defense counsel gets, like, raked over the coals for people they defended. You know, Hillary Clinton had that case where she was defending a rapist in, like, 1978 or something. Yeah, yeah. And she got raked over the coals with that as recently as 2016. Yeah. Look who she had as a client. How hard is it to go through all the people that she prosecuted and find, like, you know... One black guy who had marijuana planted on him by a racist cop. Or, you know, hundreds or thousands. Or the parents that she prosecuted for their children's school delinquency. I believe is a thing that happened on her watch. See, that's... I mean, if you're a prosecutor, the cases that you prosecute or don't are sort of... It depends on the law, right? You're not just some, like, roving magistrate who decides what is and isn't legal, depending on the case. You sort of have to follow the law with whatever case you're presented with, right? Yeah, but there's still some measure of discretion. I don't think a prosecutor is just allowed to declare, I think these laws are unjust, so I won't prosecute people. Although, if your goal (laughs) is to be a democratic politician, that would be a hell of a jumping-off point. (laughs) I got fired because I wouldn't prosecute kids for their school lunch delinquency. Well... It would be a hell of a way to launch yourself into big-time democratic politics. Yeah, maybe, but, well, she's done okay for herself regardless. I think it's definitely a problem. I think it's definitely got a lot of things that need to be grappled with, you know, if she turns out to be a top-tier candidate. That's what it doesn't work for her either way. Like, if she comes out and she says... Look, these 8th graders broke the law. That's not good. But if she comes out and she says, Look, I didn't think we should be arresting parents because they couldn't afford lunch for their kids, but I was a prosecutor. I had to enforce the law. That doesn't look good for her either. No way you try to spin that winds up looking good for you. I think maybe in the 90s or 2000s, this would have been a lot easier because she would have been presenting herself as finally, I'm the Democrat they can't tar as being soft on crime. In a context in the 90s and 2000s when that was, like, a dominant narrative. When Hillary Clinton was giving speeches about super predators and Bill Clinton was passing that god-awful crime bill, all the Democrats were coming in their pants over their eagerness for mandatory minimums. At that point, that's not exactly something that's looked back on fondly by the current generation of activist Democratic voters. Uh, no. No, it's not. So, yeah, it's definitely a problem. Yes. Does she have any, like, policy positions? Like, we focus on, like, one little iota of information and expound on it like it's their defining trait. Like, does she have opinions on the issues of the day, like, aiding and abetting foreign espionage and, uh, going to war with a randomly chosen Middle Eastern country? I mean, I'm certain everyone's got a platform, right? Well, except... (laughs) Except Mike Gravel? (laughs) Yeah! 
Well, Mike Gravel has a platform in his own way. Kamala Harris co-sponsored the Green New Deal. She co-sponsored Bernie's Medicare for All bill. Supposedly, she supports marijuana legalization, which, as a prosecutor, is, you know, progress. Teacher pay is something that she's been vocal about. I heard about that recently. She has a decent enough platform. It's fine. She's... In a lot of ways, she's fine. In, ter- in terms of... I feel like you could say that about, like, 22 out of these 24 people, is they're fine. If they're the nominee, I will have no hesitancy of voting for them. But no. they don't really differentiate themselves from the rest of the pack in any significant way. I would vote for a rancid sack of mayonnaise if it was the only chance of defeating a Republican. Sadly, there are several rancid sacks of mayonnaise running. Have we gotten to any of them yet? Uh, I don't know. Biden's getting there. I feel like every single one of these people is just like, okay, they're an okay Democrat. Like, they all have, like, one or two things that make you go, but nothing that's, like, automatically disqualifying yet. But none of them have anything that make you go, ooh, I like that. I support them. These are all just, like, you know, insert Democratic candidate here. A lot of them are, yeah. So, there's another one. She's for the people. Sure. Our next candidate, in this picture, he looks a bit like Bill Gates's stunt double. (laughs) It is former governor of Colorado, John Hickenlooper. His logo, first of all, the text reads Hickenlooper 2020. I like that. Last name, year of the election. Doesn't claim he's for America or for the people or for whatever. Just the year and his name. And then he's got like a like motif that I guess is supposed to be suggestive of mountains, but it's not an actual picture of mountains, it's just a geometric design. It's pretty good, I like it. Good job. John Hickenlooper is another candidate who really ought to be running for Senate. You mean since Michael Bennett is abandoning the seat to run for president? Uh, no, there's an actual Republican senator who's up for re-election this year. I tried to look up at least, you know, a couple of things about each of these candidates. The first thing I came upon for John Hickenlooper was the headline, Hickenlooper threatens to sue any town or city that bans fracking. Oh, that's not great. So that's cool. That's nice. Otherwise, just another dude. So huge fan of oil companies, huge opponent of clean water. Yes. This is the first one that deviates strongly from average Democrat, I guess. In our very extremely limited knowledge. (laughs) Still, he'd be better in the Senate. Our next candidate, the current governor of the great state of Washington, Jay Inslee. This is sort of your standard smiling, way too wide, posed portrait photo. He's the first person to have actual, like, imagery beyond geometric design in his logo. It appears to be an image of the planet on a black background, and the text says, Inslee, our moment. Jay Inslee seems to be a nice guy who means well. He's running a single-issue campaign to try to bring climate issues to the forefront, and nobody's really engaging him on it. Well, that makes me much less interested in the other 23 people, frankly. (laughs) Okay. I was about to say, there are far worse issues to be your single-issue. Yes, uh, his banner policy proposal is a scheme for carbon restriction, obviously, and I don't remember the exact date he set for zero carbon emissions, probably like 2035 or something like that. That's an extremely aggressive plan. 
probably not enough to save us, but an extremely aggressive plan. Yeah, but yes, he's running, I think, almost purely on climate stuff, and is not getting a whole lot of traction with it, which is a sorry state of affairs. Well, that's depressing. Yeah. Our next candidate, who, very disappointingly, her logo says, Amy for America. Yeah. That's like two of my big logo bugaboos. Yes. The U.S. Senator from Minnesota, Amy Klobuchar. So, where was she on the whole make Frank and resign train? She probably, you know, got on the bandwagon with everyone else about five minutes after Kristen Gillibrand. (laughs) I don't remember specifically, I'm assuming. On a lot of issues, Klobuchar's kind of... It feels like she's kind of trying to stake out a position as a 2000s Democrat who's too uh, scared to go along with a lot of the, like, issues that energize the activist base of the party, but instead kind of scolds people about the Green New Deal and Medicare bills and things like that. What do you call a fossil that's not old enough to be a fossil? A relic? Sure. Okay. She's like Joe Biden, except from 15 years ago instead of 30 years ago. Well, I do know she's been in the Senate a long time because I remember watching C-SPAN when they would do roll calls, and you don't forget a name like Klobuchar. Yeah, she's been there for, like, 10, 12 years. She she was elected probably in 06, the, the 06 wave, I think was when she went in. The other thing that really started coming out when she announced her campaign was a lot of allegations of temper issues, staff abuse, throwing things, banging things, going through staffers quickly because they couldn't handle that sort of tantrums. You know, it's actually one element of temperament that is actually relevant as a president. I don't know, I'm sort of sympathetic to that. You know my temper. (laughs) Yeah, well, you know my temper too, but I don't think either of us would be a particularly effective president. I'd be more fun. Really? Look, the country's been chugging along with an imbecilic grifter as president. I was just going to say, you see how bad things get in terms of staffing issues with someone with this temperament. So she's one of the more conservative candidates, and she's going to throw shit at you. Quite possibly, yes. Our next candidate, (laughs) the mayor of Miramar, Florida... Wayne Messam. Not only have I not heard of him before we went through this list, I have not heard of the place that he's mayor of. The only reason I've heard of Miramar is because they mention it as one of the towns served by a car dealership that runs local ads on the one-hour pre-show of the Dan Lebitard ESPN show. They have, like, three hours on ESPN, but before that, they have, like, an earlier pre-show hour that runs only on the local Miami station. Oh, my God. And so you can't get that on the ESPN website feed. You have to get that from the Miami radio station website feed. And so I've heard ads about a car dealership that serves the population of many towns around Miami and southern Florida, including Miramar. I would like to read from the Wayne Messam campaign's Wikipedia article, if that's okay. In mid-April, it was reported that Messam had been beefing up his campaign staff with predominantly female alumni of the Andrew Gillum gubernatorial campaign and the Barack Obama presidential campaign. His campaign was reported to have had approximately 20 employees. Soon after, however, it was reported by the Miami New Times that sources were claiming the campaign had failed to pay its staff. The lack of pay allegedly led to several staff departures. 
In response to inquiries, Messam said that the campaign does not have employees, only consultants and vendors. So Those that, are also people you have to pay. Yes, that's a great campaign you've got going there. So basically he's saying, he's just like Vince McMahon, these aren't employees, they're independent contractors? Yeah, they're independent contractors, I don't have to get them insurance and shit. Also, his logo says Wayne for America, so all of the same criticisms, I just deleted Amy Klobuchar. Mm-hmm. Although uh, Amy Klobuchar does have a serif font. You were just saying nobody has serifs anymore. Uh, she has a serif font. You know, that's true. That's true. I gotta give her that. A nice, thin serif font. Wayne Messam did not qualify for the debate. The American people don't get to hear his ideas. Isn't that a shame? Yeah. Our next candidate is the U.S. Representative from Massachusetts, Seth Moulton. Yeah, this guy. I have never heard that name before. I have heard of Seth Moulton because he was the most recent blandly conservative white dude representative who tried to lead a campaign to unseat Nancy Pelosi as the caucus leader when the 2019 Congress convened. Hmm. He wasn't running for leader, he was just trying to gather people to vote for someone else for leader. A windmill that someone or other tilts at about every two years. Well, does he have any policy positions that we know of? I have one article about Seth Moulton that I would like to read some uh, excerpts of, actually. This is an article from BuzzFeed News titled, Seth Moulton says he would use diplomacy to fight off an alien invasion as president. Would he? Representative Seth Moulton, a newly announced 2020 presidential candidate and House Democrat, said Monday if he were president during an alien invasion, he would start with diplomacy by giving the extraterrestrial visitors a, quote, classic American meal, unquote, like a beer and a burger. Would he? I would not build a wall between here and Mars, Moulton, who bears some resemblance to the president in Independence Day, he doesn't. Answered when asked well, he's, about... he's a generic white dude in that respect. <laughs> he sort of does. Uh, you know what he looks like? What does he look like? He looks a lot like Captain America from that new video game that didn't pay for the rights to the, the image of Chris Evans. Oh my god, you're right! <laughs> Holy crap, you're right! <laughs> They're making a new Marvel Avengers video game but they didn't pay for the rights to the likeness of any of the actors in the movies. It's just based on the comic books, and so they couldn't make them look too much like the actors, because then the actors could sue for rights infringement, but they didn't want to make them look entirely unlike the actors, because they're trying to cash in on the popularity of the movies. And so it's this weird, uncanny valley. All of the characters in this video game look like that scene in Spaceballs, where they capture their stunt doubles. And this guy does look a lot like Captain America from that video game trailer. So yeah, there's Seth Moulton. Would you like to talk about his logo before we move on? I don't like how his first name is, like, giant and his last name is tiny. That's unbalanced to me. Mmm, I suppose. I mean, the little thing where they take the star and sort of, like, accent three points of the star to turn it into an arrow, that's a kind of a cool idea, a cool graphical thing. But the name just looks massively unbalanced. Everything in the logo, his last name and the year and the star is one size, and then his first name is just ginormous. It's very unbalanced. Mm, fair. Let's move on. I don't know. I like that he has a plan for first contact. 
God, you know, it, it kind of reminds me during the uh, Republican primary in 2016 when suddenly for a week everyone had to give their opinion on whether they would kill baby Hitler. <laughs> I thought we all settled on the evil baby orphanage for baby Hitler. I think we did. I don't think Jeb Bush did. Nobody told the Republican primary candidates about the evil baby orphanage? That's socialism. Our next candidate is a former representative from Texas. Beto O'Rourke. You must have heard of Beto, right? I think you mentioned him to me. Didn't he, like, run for another office, which apparently he lost because he doesn't have a current office listed here? He lost the Senate race to Ted Cruz last year. And he thinks not being a senator makes him presidential material? Again, like Amy for America and Wayne for America, his logo just says Beto for America. Yeah, well, it's an almost exact copy of his uh, Beto for Texas signs. Yeah, it's amazing how he keeps trying to fail up, isn't it? <laughs> I know nothing about him. He's another bland moderate dude. He's not, you know, signing on for anything radical. He has a lot of, um, how do I want to phrase this? He did a whole press tour about how I was born for this. For campaigning? Maybe? For losing campaigns? I don't know. He's another one that people keep saying should have run for Senate instead. That, you know, after losing to Ted Cruz, he should run against Cornyn, too. Someone has to. Yeah, I mean, they'll get someone. The next candidate... I haven't been describing everyone's picture because everyone just sort of looks like a generic white guy, but this person very, very much looks like a generic white guy. Yeah. He is the U.S. representative from Ohio, Tim Ryan. I've literally never heard of this person. Well, he's a very generic white man in the House Democratic Caucus, and what does that mean? He ran against Nancy Pelosi, too! <laughs> His logo just says Tim Ryan. Yeah, it does yeah. It doesn't even say what office, what year. He's not for the people, he's not for America. He's just Tim Ryan. Well, they won't have to print more when he drops out and runs for the house again in about a month and a half. <laughs> so, we're starting to move through these people quicker because well, we're going to I don't care about any of these generic people I've never heard of. Well, we're going to start catching real soon. Ah, uh, here we go. The next candidate is the U.S. Senator from Vermont, the Socialist Democrat or Democratic Socialist or some other damn thing, Bernie Sanders. What is there even left to say about Bernie at this point? Is there anything he's doing in the 2020 race that is substantially different from what he was doing in 2016? Has he, like, staked out any changed positions or changed his strategy significantly in any way? Or is he literally just doing the same thing he did in 2016, except now Hillary Clinton isn't in the race? I believe he's just rerunning his 2016 campaign, which, for a lot of his fan base, is all well and good. I didn't hate his 2016 campaign. I think he allows his focus on economic issues to sort of blind him to other issues that aren't rooted in economic interests. But I don't have anything, like, really bad to say about him. He is someone who, in his last campaign, when, like, I think, like, some Black Lives Matter activists tried to speak to him about some positions, and he just, he, like, 
I don't know, there was some incident where he seemed to have brushed them off and they complained about it, and his response was, oh, sorry, why don't you come meet me in my office next Tuesday? So, I like that. I continue to be more frustrated with Bernie's cult of personality than I really am with Bernie himself. It gets bad at times. The absolute worst thing about his campaign is the online activities of some of his supporters. I think here you can really highlight some of the structural aspects that determine what someone would actually do as president. Because we talk about policy initiatives that people have, but like we've also mentioned, it is extremely, extremely unlikely that the Democrats will manage to win the Senate. So the ability to actually pass any policy initiatives is basically absent. And so the most important things that a presidential candidate has to do is, one, help the party win the Senate, and two, have a plan in place, some sort of plan, for how to get anything done with a Republican Senate. Well, it sounds like you're leaning towards Biden, then. He's the one that's all chummy with all the senators, that he can get them to go along with his ideas. No, he's living in a fucking fantasy world. <laughs> Bernie, when asked about these constraints, generally says, I'll convince him. I don't know if he just doesn't want to talk about it, or he actually believes that. I think Bernie Sanders, to an extent, suffers from a mental block that's very similar to a lot of Democrats. It's particularly prone to idealists that because the things that he wants to do are so necessary, and because the policies he wants to implement are so right and would help so many people, he feels like it should be possible to convince other people of this because it's so obvious and so good and so necessary. It should be possible to convince other people of the goodness and rightness and necessity of this thing that is so obviously good and right and necessary. I think a lot of idealists and a lot of activists who get into activism because of their ideals suffer from sort of a blind spot like that. Mm. And I think he sort of does in a way too. Like, this is so desperately needed, who could possibly oppose this? Except he's been in the Senate how long now? You know, he's... How many years was Obama president before he finally said, fuck the Republicans, I'm just going to do what I can without them? I would argue more than the eight years he was actually president. Yeah, I was going to say eight. Yeah. <laughs> mm, God, he kept running into that wall. And yet, a lot of the things that need to be fixed would need such radical fixes. Like, structurally, constitutionally, how do you fix the way that the Senate is getting tilted toward an extreme minority of the electorate? When, for entirely understandable, reasonable reasons, there's a population increase on the coasts because of cultural attitudes, because of economic opportunities, because of schools, because of whatever which results in more and more of the Senate being elected by fewer and fewer people. How do you reform that when the Senate is necessary to do anything? Well, if you're asking that question seriously... I don't have an answer, and I don't expect you to. The more radical answer would be either A, abolish the Senate and just have a unicameral legislature, or B, make the Senate population proportional to some degree. The less radical answer is increase the number of representatives in the House. 
That's something that should be done anyway. I don't know what exactly the number is as to how many people are represented by each person in the house, but it should be a lot less. There like, need to be whoever, more representatives. Whoever is the representative for Wyoming, or the one representative from Alaska, they represent a fuck of a lot fewer people than Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez does in her district in New York City. Mm-hmm. So having more representatives in total would mean that very not populated states that still have to have at least one representative, it would at least be less out of proportion. Now, granted, that wouldn't really do anything about two senators per state and like a whole bunch of tiny states blocking up the Senate. In order to do that, what you'd have to do, again, either get rid of the Senate or make the Senate population proportional. I guess the other, and I don't know if this is any less radical, is you take big states and separate them out so that the land that used to be California now has six or eight senators. Yeah, but if you separate California, you get at least one red state in there. I mean, you get Southern California or, or whatever particular area. I suppose the, I don't know if you can even call it the quote-unquote easiest way to at least have some relief in the Senate is D.C. statehood. Maybe Puerto Rico. I know that's a whole thing, but D.C. statehood I think is a lot more procedurally and ethically straightforward. And would also, as with doing anything positive would require democratic control of the Senate. But I mean, that's what you'd have to do, is either break up big states so that you don't have two senators representing 40 million people in California and also two senators representing 300,000 people in Wyoming, or make the Senate proportional. And those are both rather radical steps. Yes. I mean, I do kind of like the idea of giving tiny states more of a voice in one house so they don't just get completely overwhelmed, but... Like, in theory, ideally, I like the idea, but the way it's being used in practice is just for a tiny group of people to fuck everything up for the rest of us. Yeah, basically. If the two senators representing only 300,000 people in Wyoming would, like, participate in representative democracy in good faith... I mean, that's Joe Biden's fantasy world, right? That everyone's yeah. operating in good faith. Yeah. I have a distressing number of policy positions where I have to say, in theory, in an ideal world, I think this way, but in reality, the way things are going, I have to think this way. Yeah, basically. Anyway. Anyway. Our next candidate, this is generic white person number five or six or eight or something. He has a very sharply defined hairdo. Mm -hmm. This is a U.S. representative from California, Eric... Swal Swalwell 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 I want to say like swallow or just sawwell but it's Swalwell I often swallow very poorly Yeah he's another like I said generic white dude his top issue seems to be gun permits which is fair enough We don't have enough of them uh, we don't have enough requirements for them. Oh, well, that's true, I guess. We're whipping through them. Yeah, we're getting there. Well, we were for one. <laughs> Our next candidate is the U.S. Senator from Massachusetts, Elizabeth Warren. Her logo just says Warren. Oh, I haven't been talking about the logos. Uh, Bernie, I have to dock because his logo says Bernie. Yeah. <laughs> But Eric Swalwell, his logo has both of his names. So, like, you can try to figure out how to pronounce Swalwell. That's left as an exercise to the reader. I really can't wrap my mouth around that. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> Warren. 
Warren, yes. Oh, yes, the woman with a plan for everything and about 150 headline policies. I have to say, I think I may be leaning in the Warren direction because I heard about one of her policies. I was listening to a media criticism podcast, and they mentioned one of her policies because, you know, I'm a lefty liberal coastal elitist, so I don't try to hide that fact. I've been saying for several years that, like, a tax on personal income is an incredibly regressive way of raising funds for government, especially with the limits on what we count as income and what we don't. If we're well, as long as there's an upper limit on what's taxable, yeah. If we're going to tax something, it shouldn't just be what you've earned this year. It should be, like, personal net wealth. Like, let the people who have benefited the most from living in society pay for the upkeep of that society. Mm-hmm. And so I've been saying for years that basically what we should do is take property taxes, expand the definition of property to include more than just your house and your car, but to also include your stock investments and your cash holdings and anything else that's in your name. Give it a graduated rate schedule the way the income tax personally has, and then implement that. And Elizabeth Warren doesn't quite have a plan that radically, insanely impossible to implement in our current political climate, but she does have something that she calls a wealth tax, which is sort of like the first step on the road to that sort of thing, where she wants to tax people that are just hoarding incredible amounts of wealth, tax them a few percentage points of that wealth for all of the benefits that they receive from living in a society that protects their right to hold all that wealth. Mm-hmm. And she's the only candidate I've heard that supports that sort of thing. Like, not even Bernie Sanders has talked about that. I don't think so, no. That's the one thing I know about the Warren campaign. Well, she has a plan like that that's in the right direction and incredibly detailed because she does an excessive amount of the homework on everything she does. She has a plan pretty much like that for just about anything you could name. Okay, well, I mean, that's not a bad thing. No, I'm not saying it is. At least you know what she stands for. Absolutely, you only have to read her medium posts. <laughs> Unfortunately, Massachusetts does have a Republican governor. <laughs> so we're back to our Senate problem. Which, by the way, so does Vermont. How did Massachusetts get a Republican governor? They just go wonky sometimes. Well, in Connecticut, we elected wonky Republican governors. Yeah, but this state is lousy with Republicans. Yeah, well, it kind of happens in, in a lot of New England where people get comfortable and decide that, you know, we can elect a Republican. It'll be fine. They'll be fine. That's what happens nationally. Well, okay. Sure. Basically. For anyone that doesn't live in Connecticut, here's a brief summation of Connecticut gubernatorial political history. Oh, Jesus. <laughs> Back in the 1980s, Connecticut had a Republican senator named Lowell Weicker. And this was back when not all Republicans were radical, reactionary douchebags. At least that's what I'm told. I wasn't politically aware at the time. I'm not making actual judgments, but this is what I've been told about him. This was, like, my mother's opinion of him. He was, like, a relatively progressive Republican who was the senator from Connecticut. I mean, these were all people who stayed Republicans after Nixon, but I get what you're saying. Well, Weicker, after he left the Senate, he quit the Republican Party and ran for the governor of Connecticut as an independent. He created a new organization he called a Connecticut Party, 
And his primary campaign issue was that at that time, Connecticut had no state income tax. And Weicker ran for governor in 1990, and his primary campaign issue was we will not have an income tax the way people some people have been agitating for this state to implement a state income tax and we will not have a state income tax and then he was elected governor on that platform in 1990 and the first time he had to pass a budget he said i will not sign any budget that does not include an income tax and there was a huge showdown with the state legislature because the state legislature like weicker the state legislature was all elected on platforms of no state income tax but Weicker refused to approve any budget that didn't have a state income tax. And so eventually, just to keep the state running, the state legislature capitulated and implemented a state income tax. And Weicker was like the most hated politician in the state of Connecticut. I remember all of the impeach Weicker bumper stickers after he forced the state legislature to enact an income tax. Didn't remember Dad's boss had one. Oh, God, really? Yeah, I remember we went on one of the job sites he was working on. I went with him one day, and he had an Impeach Wiker bumper sticker on his pickup truck that he used for work. Oh, wow. They were all over the place. Everyone hated him. And so, obviously, he didn't run for re-election in 94. In 94, we elected Republican John Rowland as governor. And in the 94 election, John Rowland's primary campaign message was, Elect me, and I will repeal the income tax. And so he was elected in 94, and he did nothing about the income tax. In 1998, John Rowland ran for re-election, and his primary campaign issue in the 1998 election was, Re-elect me, and I will repeal the income tax that he had just spent four years not repealing. And Connecticut re-elected him again. And he still didn't repeal the income tax. And in 2002... The income tax was no longer an issue, and Connecticut re-elected Rowland a third time. He later had to resign after he was indicted on corruption issues, and he spent time in jail. But we elected a governor specifically to repeal one particular policy. He did not repeal that policy, and then won re-election again promising to repeal that one particular policy. That's how Connecticut picks its governors. Sorry for that divergence. For now... We can go back to discussing the author, lecturer, and activist, Marianne Williamson, who was apparently running for president. Yes. Marianne Williamson describes herself as a, quote, pretty straight-line progressive Democrat, which means all of the standard things you'd expect in Medicare for All, the Green New Deal, DACA, things like that. She did make one news cycle when she proposed a $100 billion reparations plan for African Americans. So that briefly got into the news cycle. Elizabeth Warren signed on for it, to her credit. We talked about this earlier. That seems like a band-aid on a more structural problem. Sure. I mean, I get the argument for reparations, and I can't really make an argument that they're not due, but I don't think they would accomplish much in and of themselves. I think the thing we have to do is address the structural inequality that disadvantages not just African Americans, but in large part, specifically African Americans. Yes, I mean, we have to do both, but yes, I, sure, absolutely. I never heard of this person, I have nothing to say. Her campaign logo just says Marianne, so, not great. Mm. 
Although, at least since she's not an actual politician, she doesn't have one of those stilted, staged, official political portraits. So, Sure. Our next candidate is entrepreneur, philanthropist, and founder of Venture for America, Andrew Yang. Yes, Andrew Yang, Silicon Valley tech bro. I know two things about Andrew Yang. I will tell you the two things I know about Andrew Yang. He proposes a universal basic income, but his UBI proposal is basically a Trojan horse to freeze every other social program and the minimum wage on the theory that the UBI will just take care of everything. Mm. I mean, there are other social programs that would be less necessary with UBI, but that's a very case-by-case basis. And it also depends on how you implement UBI. I lied. I actually know three things about him. There's his UBI. He wants to lower the voting age to 16, which is an interesting idea that I, you know, I won't dismiss out of hand. And he has a significant following on 4chan. Yeah. 4chan and the political board on 4chan, for those who don't know, is a prime breeding ground for our current internet neo-Nazi movement. I don't think Andrew Yang is necessarily an internet Nazi, but I question why they love him. Hmm. I'm kind of stumped. Why is 4chan so all fire in favor of the universal basic income guy? I do not know. I mean, if he's a venture capitalist, I mean, he founded a company called Venture for America, so I'm assuming he's a venture capitalist. Mm-hmm. I know a certain segment of the online population venerates venture capitalists. Yeah. Oh, wait, that's... Apparently it's not a venture capital firm. It's a non-profit that trains graduates and young professionals to work for startup companies. So it's sort of venture capital adjacent? I guess. I don't know. I never heard of this guy, so I have nothing to say about him. I don't spend a lot of time really investigating the nooks and crannies of alt-right shitholes like 4chan. So I don't know why so many in the putative Yang gang have attached to him. I don't get it. Presumably for the lulls, I guess. There's a list here of other notable people who have filed FEC paperwork to run, but for whatever reason are not deemed a major candidate, and I've never heard of any of them, so I have nothing to say about any of them. Basically. And there's the one guy that was previously mentioned that already withdrew, Richard Ojeda, who's a former West Virginia state senator. That's enough of a platform, that'll do it. His picture is a military-posed photo rather than a taking-political-office-posed photo. So... So those are the Democrats. Those are the Democratic candidates currently. There will soon be fewer. Well, I don't know how soon. They might try to stick it out to Iowa, but... How many? There's 24 people right now, and just for the record, I have a direct, even split. Really? Ten of these people... I am familiar with, not necessarily intimately familiar with their policy positions, but I know of them, I heard of them, I know that they are a politician. Ten of these people, I literally had never heard the name before today. And four of these people, I knew the name and knew nothing else about them. So I'm ten, four, and ten on these 24 candidates. Wow, that's impressive. I would have expected you to have heard of fewer. So, 
What is your estimate of these 24 candidates? How many of them will still be candidates as of the Iowa caucus? On the day of Iowa, as in contesting in the Iowa caucus? Not just on the ballot in the caucus, but still actively Act running a campaign as of the Iowa caucus. Okay, okay. To whatever extent they're currently act actively running a campaign. Because you can't say, well, Mike Gravel just has these two Twitter douches, so that doesn't count. I think a lot of them are going to try to stick it out to Iowa, and then there will be the typical die-off, like, right after Iowa. Oh, yeah. I am going to say 18. Go to Iowa. You taking the over or the under? I would probably go over. Okay. Because even if they, like, stop campaigning, there's no real reason to shut it down before Iowa. Yeah, unless they're, like, seriously, seriously out of money. Well, that's the thing. Once you shut down your campaign, you have to stop fundraising, right? No, there are lots of campaigns that shut down and then keep fundraising to pay off campaign debt. Mmm, that's true. I think that should be clearly stated, so donors don't think they're contributing to a, uh, an ongoing campaign. But, again, I don't know exactly how the regulations work out. Remember in 2008, wasn't Hillary Clinton still fundraising to pay off campaign debt, like, after the general election? That went on for a while. Because uh, she owed, like, all this money to Mark Penn? Oh, God. Talk about the opposite of getting your money's worth. Fucking Mark Penn and Terry McAuliffe. Who was a decent enough governor of Virginia? I gotta give that to him. Surprised he's not running for president. <laughs> the look of horror on your face was very funny. I'm sorry, listeners, I've lost my ability to can. <laughs> oh, wow. I think that that is more than enough for our breakdown of the Democratic candidates for president at present. Would you like to reconvene after the break to discuss the Republican candidates? Would I like to? Well, it's our show. We could choose not to. We will be back in just a couple of minutes. Stay with us. Promotional consideration paid for by the following. Place Your Nations, JT Rosero and Chad Campbell here. We want to let you know that we have over two dozen podcasts available on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, and PlaceFeedNation.com. We now offer them to you on two great feeds. On the PlaceFeedNation Wrestling feed, we dive into topics running the gamut from today's WWE to the glory days of yesteryear and the ins and outs of the territory days. In addition to our full-length shows, we also deliver to you special pod blasts on topics old and new. The Place to Be Nation Pop Feed is a veritable treasure trove of great content. Offered tremendous shows covering the land of movies, television, life, comics, and sports. Brought to you by the most knowledgeable and insightful folks in the podcast world. You can find all of these current shows, plus archives of our previous podcasts over the past eight years as well, by subscribing to our feeds on iTunes. And while there, be sure to rate and leave feedback as well. All of these shows, plus others available at PlaceMation.com, where we cover pro wrestling, sports, movies, comics, plus in-depth stretch projects, and more. Be sure to support our site by using www.placeimation.com forward slash Amazon while doing your online shopping. And be sure to join us at our forum at Bigelow34.proboards.com. 
WrestlingTalkingPodcast.com for all sorts of wrestling, sports, and pop culture discussion each and every day where you can make your voice heard. We also want to thank our friends at Bonehead's Wing Bar, ProWrestlingOnly.com, and TheHistoryOfWrestling.com. Be sure to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Tumblr as well. PlaySuation.com, the only place to be in your pop culture world. It's always a big week here on the PlayStation Pop podcast feed. In the newest Marvel Age, the Sarcastic Four dive into 1971 with the first of three episodes covering that year. The eighth episode of Laugh-In Theater has Andy welcoming hard-traveling fanboy Greg Phillips to watch what they believe to be one of the funniest movies of all time, Austin Powers' International Man of Mystery. Speaking of the hard-traveling fanboys, Greg and Nick continue X-Men Month with a review of the newest film, Dark Phoenix. Did they love it as much as the critics? DC4U, the newest weekly comics show on the pop feed, reaches its third episode with Russell and Todd talking about one of the hidden gems of the DC Universe app, Legends of the Superheroes, Part 1, The Challenge. Batman 66 fans do not want to miss it. Jennifer Smith is back with a new episode of Freak Out Drive-In, as she welcomes returning guest Scott Criscolo to watch that hit 2016 clown horror movie, Terrifier. On a new episode of the NBA team, Adam Murray and Andrew Reich are here to reflect on what turned out to be quite the week in the land of the NBA. And on a brand new PTBN pop special, Andy Scott, Jay Arsenio D'Amato, and Todd Weber get together to discuss the reboot of Place to Be Nation's greatest song of the 80s tournament. You can search that phrase on Facebook, PTBN's Greatest Song of the 80s Tournament, and find the first round now. Over on the PlayStation Nation Wrestling feed, on the newest episode of the main event, Scott, Nate, and Steve recap NJPW's Dominion, look ahead to the G1 Climax, and discuss AEW's TV deal with Turner. On the Place to Be podcast, Justin, Scott, and Steve Bennett are back inside the home office for a dive into the September 30th, 1989 MSG show. After a six-month hiatus, Steve Bennett and Peter Winston reunite to discuss their ten favorite single-season sports teams of all time on the Adams Division podcast. And in row one, seat one, Ben welcomes action wrestling champion AC Mack to the podcast. Meanwhile, over at PlaceToBeNation.com, our tribute to the year 1994 is off and running with pieces on the Best Picture nominees for the Academy Awards, the 1994 World Cup, and the miniseries The Stand. Also, go to Police to Be Nation every Wednesday morning at 9 a.m. sharp for the newest edition of the Wednesday Walk Around the Web, a weekly feature that I have been doing for 10 years now. I just marked our 10th anniversary of that last week. It's a weekly link roundup of things that I find interesting or entertaining or important, and I hope that you do too. Speaking of things that we maybe might find important, let's get back to the show. Let's get back into our rip-roaring tour of the 2020 candidates with the Republican side. Scott, do you want to jump into it? Well, the first candidate listed here is the current president of these United States, Donald Trump. I think we've already kind of discussed him. There is apparently a primary challenger for President Trump. It is the former governor of Massachusetts, Bill Weld. Speaking of New England periodically electing Republicans. His political experience includes being the governor of Massachusetts as recently as 1997 and being the Libertarian vice presidential nominee in 2016. Sure was. 
And, he's, that, and now he's running the Republican primary, supposedly, against Donald Trump. Do you remember in 2016 the hashtag Never Trump movement? Vaguely. They all wound up supporting Trump. Yeah. Here's what they're left with. They're left with the primary challenge of Bill Weld. By the way, in this photo on Wikipedia, he sort of looks like your disappointed grandpa. Yeah, that's basically his character in politics, too, isn't it? I mean, he's literally a 1990s Republican. Apparently, he supports some gay rights, so I guess he's better than most Republicans, in some ways. But literally, his entire deal is trying to appeal to people who think that the Republicans can just be, like... They can still pursue just about all of the policies that they're pursuing. And just about all of the policies that Mitch McConnell and Donald Trump and Paul Ryan, before he fucked off into the night, were pursuing. They can just be a little more genteel about it. They can just be a little more calm about it. It's... Nobody who voted for Donald Trump gives a single solitary fuck about being calm or genteel. Yeah, that's the miscalculation that Jeb made. By the way, I don't give a single solitary fuck about being calm or genteel either. We have people at fucking concentration camps. I don't care about being calm or genteel about that. We have people being murdered by police officers every day. I don't care about being calm or genteel about that. We have a, a fucking mass shooting practically every week. I don't care about being calm or genteel about that. It's the same as the Joe Biden fantasy, isn't it? That as long as we get rid of Trump, then everything will go back to normal. Except the normal now and the pre-Trump normal were both fucking terrible for most people. Yeah, the pre-Trump normal was Dick Cheney, and the pre-Dick Cheney normal was Newt Gingrich. <laughs> we're talking about Joe Biden again. But, like, literally the fantasy that he's selling is, remember Obama? I can take us back to that era. You were comfortable, you were fine during the Obama era, right? Except during the Obama era, we had Ferguson. And during the Obama era, we had everything that's happened in Libya and Yemen. Yeah, I can bring back all of the policy failures of ramming your head against a brick wall in the Senate of the Obama years, but without the progressiveness of his mere existence as president. It's the fantasy that Biden is selling and so many of these people are selling and that Bill Weld wants to sell that if we only got rid of the orange man who keeps tweeting, if we only had a president who didn't tweet, then we could all sigh with relief and go back to our lives as normal. I'm afraid that'll be too attractive to too many people. Well, I'll tell you now, if Bill Weld wins the nomination, I will eat this podcast. I'm not saying no. Nobody in the Republican primary electorate wants to listen to Bill Weld. They want to get their serotonin hits at the Trump rallies. You know, where they have their five minutes hate on the fake news media. That's obviously an absolute dead starter, but what I'm saying is it's the same fantasy. It's the same thing that Biden is trying to sell the Democratic primary electorate because he's not going to get them on issues. He's not going to get them on bold, progressive policy. But that's not his goal. Would you like to move on to third parties? No, I want to know how many Republican candidates do you think will still be running in Iowa? <laughs> 
I mean, if Bill Weld bothered to file, I imagine he'll stay in it just for fucks. I mean, it would be an amazingly stupid and inept campaign if he filed to be a primary challenger to the sitting president and then withdrew his campaign before the first caucus. Like, why did you bother? Do you seriously want to move on to third party? Is, is anyone running in a third party that we've heard of or care about? Well, we don't have to go through oh all my... of these candidates. Oh my god, I just remembered one of them. Oh my god, I just remembered one of them. Yeah, that's the one I wanted to get to quickly. How are they categorizing these? These are declared candidates for the 2020 Libertarian presidential primaries? They have Libertarian primaries? Yeah. One of them is anti-war political activist Adam Kokesh. I know nothing about him. I like anti-war activism. Mm, I don't know, whatever. His campaign logo says, Adam Kokesh, finally free America, which I think is a very good motto for a libertarian candidacy. There's also a man named Arvin Vohra, V-O-H-R-A, Vohra, who uh, his only political office that's listed here is vice chair of the Libertarian National Committee. So, And a man named Vermin Supreme, who is a performance artist and activist. His logo says, Vermin Supreme, a dictator you can trust. Oh, you've been talking about the benefits of benevolent dictatorship for a long time. That is another area where, in theory, I like the idea, but in practice it doesn't work. The only real problem I've ever had with benevolent despotism is the impossibility of finding a benevolent despot. Or the impossibility of re reliably finding a benevolent despot. On the off chance that you actually do find a benevolent despot, you never find a second. You know, have you ever thought, after listening to the uh, Fall of the Roman Republic series on Hardcore History, have you ever thought about what you would do with a nice, like, temporary dictatorship to really fix democracy? You're putting a lot of trust into whoever you choose as that dictator. No, I'm thinking about an absolute fantasy, like if it was you. Oh, well, I guess I would implement a lot of those structural changes that we've been talking about as being too radical to actually do. Sure. You know, fix the over-representation of empty lands in the Senate, increase the number of representatives because that would fix the over-representation of empty lands in the Electoral College, implement a universal graduated wealth tax to replace the income tax. You know, little things like that. You know, small common sense reforms. Anyway, the Libertarian candidate we really want to talk about, although Vermin Supreme is an amazing revelation I was not aware of. Yeah, true. But the most well-known of these declared Libertarian candidates is former tech CEO and verified crazy person, John McAfee. How did we get to this pass? I mean, it's the Libertarian Party. He has a good chance of getting the nomination. Although, according to this table, he was born in the United Kingdom. I mean, maybe both of his parents were Americans, and so he has birthright citizenship that way. Yeah, I, I believe he has a, a dual citizenship, maybe. Well, citizenship isn't enough. I mean, you have to be a natural-born citizen in order to be president. No, I mean because of his, his parents, I, I believe. Okay. So, yeah, he was fired from McAfee Software in 1994 because he was too much of a crazy person... And, and he's, he's been getting worse ever since. Yes. Very entertaining follow on Twitter. Yeah, when he's not tweeting random photos of his gun collection. Sounds like he would appeal to libertarians. Yeah, maybe that's why I say he has a, a good chance, I'd say. 
John McAfee actually ran for president in 2016 for the Cyber Party. Apparently, one libertarian candidate has already entered and exited the race. It is transhumanist activist and futurist Zoltan Istvan, who I believe we talked about last time. Yeah, probably. Publicly expressed interest in the 2020 libertarian presidential nomination, U.S. Representative Justin Amash of Michigan. Justin Amash? The one Republican who wants to impeach the president? I did find an article about John McAfee's presidential campaign. This year or last time? This time. This is an article from CNET titled, John McAfee has recruited hundreds of masked lookalikes for his 2020 presidential bid. He is very concerned about his personal security. In a series of videos posted to Twitter, McAfee claimed he will now have to run his campaign in exile because he's fleeing felony charges brought by the IRS. Today, a grand jury was convened by the IRS to indict Janice, his wife, and myself, and four as-yet-unnamed campaign workers for various tax fraud issues, he said in one video post, filmed on his, quote, freedom boat in unnamed tropical waters. Did I mention he was kind of a crazy person? CNET contacted McAfee via the email address listed on his Twitter account. In reply, McAfee told CNET he could not say exactly where he was in the ocean, but that he was yet to receive full details of the charges in the indictment. But despite the reported indictment, McAfee has not been deterred from his presidential ambitions. Quote, You're probably wondering how I'm going to manage my presidential campaign from a boat. Let's say that I have been. <laughs> Volunteers are creating masks of my face, which are going to be given to thousands of people in two different groups. First, our road warriors, who once a month are going to appear in parks, street corners, restaurants all around America, while I speak through loudspeakers through them. McAfee said a second group would appear in the masks at keynotes and conferences to represent his campaign on the road. Quote, I will be going to conferences as a surrogate. I will be looking at people through a camera, answering questions, shaking hands as I tell my surrogate to shake hands, and speaking. You know, if he was using holograms instead of people in masks, that would be like the most 2010s campaign ever. Even more than the uh, Twitter troll presidential campaign or the Yang Gang? I would be very entertained if he got on the ballot. Does he take campaign contributions exclusively in Bitcoin? That would not surprise me in the least. Anyway. <laughs> also, is Vermin Supreme that guy's official legal name? Because there are rules about using your official legal name on all elections materials. Like, remember when the guy that played Grandpa on the Munsters ran for governor of New York and he wanted to put Grandpa on the ballot mm. and they wouldn't let him because it wasn't his legal name? Supreme is known for wearing a boot as a hat and carrying a large toothbrush, and has said that if elected president of the United States, he will pass a law requiring people to brush their teeth. By the way, in, the, in this photo on Wikipedia, he looks like Saruman. Saruman, if Saruman has gone feral for a little while. Also, a, a law requiring people to brush their teeth isn't very libertarian. That's a government intrusion on what happens in my home. That's very true. McAfee should hit him hard on that issue via teleconference from a boat. 
This is why I love the third parties. What I don't understand is all these people that have already entered the race and then left it already. 18 months before the election. Mm-hmm. Even for third parties. There are two candidates that have already withdrawn from the Green Party race. That is sad. Is there anyone I recognize in this Green Party race? No. Howie Hawkins is a good name. That sounds like the name that you would give a political candidate in a novel. In the 2008 New Hampshire Republican primary, Vermin Supreme got 41 votes. Howie Hawkins is apparently a co-founder of the Green Party. He also ran in the 2016 Democratic primaries. This isn't broken down by state, so he must have been in several. He got a total of 268 votes. Connie Gammon is running for the presidential nomination of the Prohibition Party, as is a man from Nevada named Phil Collins. Phil Collins? Mm-hmm. Bet you didn't know the Prohibition Party was still a thing. Joshua Perkins is running for the nomination of the American Solidarity Party. His primary... Well, not primary. The... the... his... his... his most forthright qualification listed here, where other people would list, like, former senator or current governor or philanthropist and activist... Or, yeah. He has listed Jeopardy! College Championship finalist. You know, it's a better qualification than Donald Trump had. <laughs> I mean, to be fair, Donald Trump's qualification was hosted to WrestleManias. I think we've long since run out of candidates. I think well, we, we haven't run out of candidates, but I've never heard of any of these other third-party candidates. I mean, if you want an exhaustive list, we can go through Joe Schreiner and Brian <laughs> T. Carroll and Alan Augustin and Ian Schlackman. No, I'm good. We pretty much ran out of candidates around the G's on the Democratic side. <laughs> That's when you stopped paying attention? Basically. Again, this election doesn't happen for 18 months. Yeah. Are you going to watch the debate this week? Hell no. Are you kidding me? <laughs> okay. The first caucus is, like, the first week of January, probably, for Iowa, right? February 3rd. Wow, that's actually pretty late in the calendar. So February 3rd is the first caucus. The Connecticut primary isn't until April 28th. April, man. Wow. Connecticut is definitely in the back half. Although, you know, if it's anything like the last couple of contested primaries, there'll still be someone hanging on. And it'll probably be Bernie. Not Swalwell? So, the first caucus is February 4th. The Connecticut primary is April 28th. When will you start actually paying attention to this race and trying to figure out who to vote for? Okay, what do you mean by paying attention? Because... I mean trying to figure out who to vote for. I mean, that's a running process, right? Like, I stay up to date a little bit. Like, I... I, well, I we I, just went through the list and you've barely heard of half of these people. Yeah, because... I literally haven't heard of half of these people. Yeah, because so many of them are, are completely irrelevant, because... So many of them have no shot anyway. But when Bernie does something notable, I generally hear about it. When Warren announces her 75th interesting, well-thought-out policy, I, I at least see a headline about it. So if the primary were tomorrow, do you know who you would vote for? Probably Warren. Okay. I do think it's very unfortunate that her state has a Republican governor, and sometimes she has kind of a racial blind spot at times. So many of these people do. Oh, yeah, yeah, totally. But, um, probably, Warren, we'll see if anything happens in the next very long time to change give, that. 
It is ten months until the Connecticut primary. Yeah. So I guess you have time to consider. Mull it over. Hey, if something abnormal happens to preemptively sink a lot of the top-tier candidates, and we're left with, like... John McAfee? No, I don't think John McAfee is an option that I would consider. <laughs> Maybe, mm, is he offering a free mask? Do I have to send him Bitcoin to get that mask? I wonder what people think about, like... The Puerto Rico primary is June 7th, like the very last vote of any of these. And then there's like four states in the District of Columbia have their primaries on June 2nd. Like, how do people in those states feel about their state setting that primary date? Yeah, I wonder what sort of jostling happens between the National Party and the various state parties. Like, there's no reason why Iowa and New Hampshire have to be so inherently privileged in terms of the primary placement. It's just, like, a collective narrative that we've agreed to. Like, by March 3rd, there will have been 18 primaries. There's Iowa, New Hampshire, Nevada, South Carolina, and then 14 primaries on March 3rd. So, like, a whole slew of people are going to drop out after Iowa, a bunch of people are probably going to drop out after New Hampshire, Nevada, South Carolina are probably going to thin the herd more. 14 primaries on March 3rd are probably going to be down to, like, three? Probably, at most. So what do these people that don't vote until May feel about that? Blue Maybe one of them really likes Swalwell. What do the people who don't vote till May feel about only being able to choose between Biden, Bernie, and Warren? Hell, if you don't vote until March 10th, your choice is going to be limited to Biden, Bernie, or Warren. I'll tell you this, though. Joe Biden will never be president. Why is that? No Democrat who voted in favor of the Iraq War in 2003 will win the presidency. Oh, wow. Look what that vote did to Senator Clinton in 2008 and again in 2016. That vote wasn't the issue in 2016. I'm not saying it's the reason people voted for Trump over Clinton. I'm saying nobody who voted for that war will be elected president by the Democrats. It is a correlation, yes. And I think it played a large part in 2008. Yes, it did. It's one of the things that allowed Obama to stake a clear delineation on an issue that by 2008 was less controversial. It sank Kerry in 04. It sank Clinton in 08. Look what happened to Clinton in 2016. Do you have a better explanation? <laughs> Other than just we live in a dumpster fire? We do, though. In so many ways. If Joe Biden wins the nomination, he will not win the election. Well, due to a lot of factors, that seems likely. Not least his propensity for face-planting. Isn't his propensity for face-planting the reason he lost the nomination in 1988? Like... He, he lost the nomination in 1988 because he was caught plagiarizing. Like, he was caught plagiarizing one speech, and then, like these things go, that opened the floodgates to, you know, someone who knew him in college saying, oh, you plagiarized a paper, and all these things start coming out, and it becomes an entire news cycle. 2008, he face-planted just cuz. <laughs> just cuz he's, he's fucking Joe Biden, and no one on Earth is enthusiastic about Joe Biden. He had such a good opportunity to ride off in the sunset and be remembered as everyone's favorite uncle. I mean, you could say about many of these candidates, why are they running for president? But really, I can't see what this is gaining for Joe Biden. 
I think he's convinced he would have won in 2016. I think everyone's convinced they would have won in 2016. Yeah, but Biden especially, like, Clinton had Obama's enthusiastic support, and Biden has nothing. I think that stings his pride. I think he has a lot of pride. I think he has no small amount of entitlement, which you have to have to be a politician anyway, to see all, you know, there's so many problems in this country, you know what the solution is? Me. That's why everyone is offering themselves for America. Yeah, well, at least it's not America for Joe. So, so yes, this is the state of the campaign as it enters its fourth year. And as we long to stop talking about Joe Biden, but are unable to do so. Thank you, listeners, for coming with us on this very long journey. If anyone would like to find me on the lines, you can go to uh, the internet. I'm so tired. We've just been draining your life force talking about all of these candidates. Oh my god. If you would like to find me on the internet machine, you can find me at Glenny Bun on Twitter, Tumblr, Instagram. You can find our advice email address. If you would like to ask us for advice on our Spectacular Advice Hour, the address for that is spectacularadvice at gmail.com. Scott, if there are any eligible uh, singles in our region, how should they reach you? Well, if you would like to invite me to a private sex dating club, I've joined the social internet. You can find me at Spectacular Scott on MySpace. Your very own space. My very own space. Thank you, listeners, for coming with us on this very long journey. Stay tuned. Next time, I promise we'll be talking about some dumb sci-fi thing. We will see you next time. When the sun comes shining... Then I was scrolling, the wheat fields waving, the dust clouds rolling. A voice was chanting as the fog was lifting. This land was made for you and me. This land is your land. This land is my land. From California. I really hope Randy Bullock isn't one of those football players that keeps getting in trouble for beating up his girlfriend. If he is, then I apologize to, um, uh, what was the guy's name? I totally learned that soldier boy dance for nothing. <laughs>